the Jodcast. Sending the lasers to the frogs. Or the frogs to the lasers, whichever you prefer. With Ian Harrison, Fiona Healy, Monique Henson, Matthias Malenta, Haritina Magasanu, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, May 2016 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Fiona and joining me in the studio are Ian and Monique. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, Ian interviews Richard Lake, Dr. Sarah Crowther and Dr. Giles Johnson about astronomy outreach and Ian Morrison and Haratina Mugasanu take a look at what's happening in the May night sky. But first, before all that, here's Matt with this month's news. This month in the news. A team of astronomers from Cambridge University has reported a discovery of a never-before-seen dwarf galaxy in the close neighbourhood of our Milky Way. Gabriel Torelba and his colleagues use VLT Survey Telescope, a European Southern Observatory 2.6-metre instrument, to find this new object, named Crater 2, located in the constellation of Crater at a distance of 117.5 kiloparsecs that is around 383,000 light-years from the Earth. It is the second major object recently found in this area, after the discovery of Crater Globular Cluster in 2013. With its half-light radius, which defines the area that emits half of the total surface brightness, of around 1,070 parsecs, it is currently the fourth-largest dwarf galaxy orbiting Milky Way, after large and small Magellanic clouds, and Sagittarius Dwarf Spheroidal Galaxy. Despite its large size, the object was extremely difficult to find due to its low total luminosity, making it much less luminous than other Milky Way's companions of comparable size, and placing it amongst the dimmest dwarf galaxies ever seen. These unusual properties mean it is currently very difficult to describe the evolution of Crater 2 with certainty. Objects with similarly low surface brightness, known as ultra-diffuse galaxies, or UDGs, have previously been reported. They are extended objects, which is most likely caused by tidal interactions with the host galaxies. In the case of Crater 2, however, this evolutionary scenario can be ruled out, as the galaxy appears to be almost perfectly spherical in the images, without any visible signs of disruptions from the Milky Way. The team that made the discovery tried to gain some insight into the origin of this peculiar dwarf galaxy by running a number of computer simulations. They concluded it was possible that Crater 2 had previously belonged to a larger group of galaxies, which is currently falling towards the Milky Way. Dwarfs Leo 2, Leo 4 and 5, Crater 2 and the Crater Globular Cluster all seem to be aligned on the sky along a great circle with 10 objects further than 100 kiloparsec from the Milky Way, having five of them randomly aligned in such way is very unlikely, with a probability of less than half a percent. Further simulations of the orbit and velocity distributions showed it is possible that these objects once formed a much denser association and are currently undergoing disruption when falling towards the Milky Way. It is possible that Crater 2 comes from a previously unseen class that is a part of the general dwarf galaxies family and represents satellites that are relatively young Milky Way companions. However, due to the very low surface brightness, they have managed to escape detection so far because of the sensitivity limits of instruments currently in use. 
The month of April has been quite an unfortunate one for space telescopes operating in our solar system. First, on the 7th of April, during the routine communication, Kepler's spacecraft was found in the emergency mode. Previous contact three days earlier had not shown signs of any malfunctions and the spacecraft was assumed to be in a good, healthy condition. The telescope was about to begin new phase of observations at the beginning of April, when astronomers were meant to use microlensing rather than the usual transient method to look for even smaller planets than those discovered so far. On Sunday, 10th of April, the telescope was successfully recovered from the emergency mode and is currently back to its regular observing schedule, continuing the extended K2 mission. It is however still not known what caused Kepler to enter the emergency mode and remain in it for approximately 36 hours. This is problematic, as this spacecraft has already suffered significant damage which severely limited its scientific capabilities. K2 mission is a result of an effort to make the telescope operational again after its second reaction wheel failed in May 2013, making it impossible to accurately point the spacecraft. Scientists hope that whatever caused Kepler to enter the emergency mode has not caused any lasting damage to the telescope, which they hope will perform flawlessly for the remainder of its extended mission. The biggest blow to the astronomical community came on 28th of April, when the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA, announced it had lost its Hitomi satellite and would cease any efforts to bring it back to the operational state. This $286 million X-ray satellite was a major project expected to revolutionize X-ray astronomy. As reported in the Jotkas news section in April, successfully launched on the 27th of February, it stopped working unexpectedly just 39 days later on 26th of March. The next day, US Strategic Command's Joint Space Operations Center announced it had observed debris in the close vicinity of this spacecraft, most probably coming from solar panels that have broken away from the telescope. The reason for this mishap is still under investigation, but preliminary results put blame on the attitude control system, which incorrectly read the change in attitude as rotation and tried to stop it by activating the onboard reaction wheels, which caused the telescope to actually rotate. The control system could not correct the previous errors and fired a set of thrusters, to counteract this rotation. However, an incorrect command was executed, causing the engines to accelerate the rotation even further. All these factors resulted in the spacecraft reportedly rotating once every 5.2 seconds and caused its disintegration. The research team managed to perform one significant observation towards the constellation of Perseus, where the telescope observed gas motion within a galaxy cluster. This accident will undoubtedly cause a loss of more than just money invested in the development and building of the spacecraft. It is currently estimated that it would take around five years to develop another set of instruments similar to those that have flown on board the destroyed telescope. Hubble Space Telescope, which has just finished its 26th year in space this April, was used to discover the first moon of the distant dwarf planet Makemake. 
Currently dubbed MK2, the object was first seen in the images captured by the Whitefield Camera 3 instrument in April 2015. The newly discovered moon has an estimated diameter of 160 kilometers and orbits its host dwarf planet at a distance of around 21,000 kilometers. Makemake is the second brightest icy dwarf planet, about fifth of the brightness of Pluto and it is 1,300 times brighter than its moon. As previous searchers failed to find any evidence of the moon's existence, scientists believe that its orbit is edge-on as seen from the Earth, meaning that the light coming from MK2 is completely lost as it passes in front of the bright planet. This time, however, HST was pointed towards Makemake at the right time and caught a glimpse of MK2. It is currently unknown why exactly the surface of the moon is so dark. One possible hypothesis is that unlike Makemake, which is massive enough to hold to its methane crust, MK2's surface is free to escape the moon's gravitational potential when it sublimates. Further observations are needed to provide more information on the shape of the moon's orbit which will help scientists to answer the question about the origin of this satellite and whether it came to existence as a result of a collision between Makemake and another object or was once a free-floating Kuiper Belt object captured by the dwarf planet. It will also provide us with new information about Makemake itself as astronomers will be able to learn more about its composition by measuring the variations in the moon's orbit. Thanks for that, Matt. So we're kind of doing a special Jodcast this time around in which we're going to be talking a lot about outreach and the various different types of outreach work that go on at the university and that are happening at the moment. So um, Monique was talking to me before we started recording um, about an event that she coordinated at the Museum of Science and Industry and... uh, I don't really know anything about that, so Monique, why don't you tell us more? Yeah, sure. So we've got three interviews in this month's episode, and they all come from an event at the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester, as Fiona said. So um, they do lots of kind of mini festivals at the museum in Manchester, and um, it, they in January they had one called Light Fantastic, and a group of us from Trudgell Bank went along, and we had a stand there. And we had various activities, including an Oculus Rift, where you got a chance to look at the universe in different wavelengths, and you could kind of look around in your own little sphere, which is organised by Joe Zunz from here. We had an infrared camera, um, and we also had like an interferometry demo, um, which Jack, one of the PhD students here, set up as well. And Ian came along as well. Yep. Um, and um, so hopefully we might have seen some of you there, but we also got some interviews with various people from um, who were there doing other things. So Ian kind of went around with a recorder and interrogated people. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good job I'm not doing the news this week because I'm yeah. doing all the presenting. And yeah. the as well, Be like so. the Ian Harrison show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I forgot actually, but you almost got left behind as well. Cause, no, you did get left behind because yeah. you were off interviewing people and we forgot and thought you'd go <laughs> home and you were still in the museum. <laughs> so oh, dear. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Maybe let's have a listen to some of those interviews then. So the first uh, interview uh, is Ian interviewing Richard Lake about planetariums. Okay, I'm Ian. I'm at the Light Fantastic exhibition where we're running some outreach activities from Jodrell Bank. Also here as part of that festival is Richard Lake from Polestar Planetariums, who's going to talk to us a bit now. So hi, Richard. Hi. Um, So you're running this uh, planetarium exhibition. Uh, So how long have you been running planetariums? 
I've been at it now for nine or ten years, coming up ten years. Prior to that, I was a, a primary teacher. I've always had an interest in uh, in astronomy, uh, combining the two and uh, uh, taking the thing predominantly around schools is uh, is what I do on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so what kind of thing do you focus on with your planetarium outreach? Do you uh, focus on more nearby things or more cosmological things, or do you try and give it a mixture? Well, in Britain, we're, we're very well catered for in terms of the material that we can show inside these planetariums. Um, the technology is called Full Dome. Uh, it's essentially immersive hemispherical video that we can show inside. And the thing that we're very well catered for is, is that bodies such as STFT and, uh, and, and others, um, they fund uh, predominantly the National Space Centre film unit to make some gorgeous stuff for us. A lot of it is, is concerned with uh, with uh, planetary bodies, uh, but it's it's thematic as much as anything else as well. For instance, the search for extraterrestrial life, or uh, the the use of light and different frequencies for uh, for different aspects of looking out into space. Uh, so really, it's a mixture of the near and the far. And the conclusion of every show always finishes with a traditional planetarium tour of the night sky, because otherwise you simply don't feel that you're a planetarian if you don't. And people really do enjoy that still. So. And think of several astronomers at Jodrell Bank who probably could do with such a tour. Um, so you say you've been doing this for, for nine years. Do you think there's been a, much of an evolution in the kind of audiences you've seen or the level of knowledge? Because there's a lot of talk about um, the Brian Cox effect and the effect he's had on people's interest in physics. Is that something you think you've experienced? Yeah, most certainly. Yeah, um, I mean, certainly there is uh, the, you know, the, the BBC programmes and, and, and the exposure of the, the good professor has been really good for business i have to say <laughs> uh and you can you can see the effect of that but also uh what children know and what, what they already bring with them uh often really quite young children key stage two uh it's really quite knowledgeable they you can tell that they've been sitting and watching discovery channel quite frankly that's what they've been doing i i, I sometimes think that children can only take as much sort of animation or so much up to a certain point before they actually want to sit and watch something factual and, and, and bring themselves to learning, you know. Uh, and I have to say that the, the Discovery Channels, and you can say, you can tell from some of the things that have been said that it's specifically those that, that they've been looking at, that they are, that they're, they're absorbing it. And, and frankly, that and dinosaurs, and they're, they're, they're pretty wrapped on the both, you know. <laughs> so do you have a, a particular favorite aspect of the show which you really enjoy telling people because it's uh, your kind of, it has a, a, a personal excitement for you? I, I think possibly the night sky at, at the end, the tour of the night sky, simply because it is something which is accessible to everybody. Um, it's even more accessible with the advent of, uh, of smartphones and tablets, which can give you those tours of the sky as well, like, like, like a window into the constellations. It's also something that's not commonly covered on, on, on the programs we've just been talking about. You know, a, a, a child with an inquiring mind will, will know lots about planets and stars, and they will often ask about exotic objects such as black holes and neutron stars. But the bits that tend not to be covered are, are the constellations and the tour of the night sky and, and, and that kind of thing. I make I always make a point of, of never turning up and just throwing films on. You know, it's always a coherent uh, presentation with, with me presenting with film clips and images in between and then the tour of the night sky. But it's always nice to finish with that tour mm-hmm. because it is it is the bit that people tend to know less about mm-hmm. and, and, and tend to really enjoy. So what kind of variety of audiences do you tend to work with? So do you have interaction with any kind of uh, uh, academic astronomy as well? Or is it usually just the public which you get to go and do these things for? Typically schools. I, I spend 95% of my time in schools. A nursery, where they just simply want the children to sit on the floor and experience the, 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 the beauty of the night sky moving over the head, up to, uh, you know, key stage four. You know, again, there, 
there's some fairly advanced stuff we have made for us that we can put on it can it can be pitched at that level very 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 well tend tend not to get up around astrophysics in degree level largely because they know damn sight more about it than I do <laughs> but as you've pointed out yourself I can find my way around the night sky but a bit better than most of them as well so uh, so it's uh, but yes it's uh, and, and I have to say when I do run into astrophysicists they're always very generous as, uh, as well so uh, they're a very pleasant bunch generally <laughs> thank you I'll, I'll try and keep that up um, so do you have a, a, a favourite particularly memorable question you've ever been asked as part of your shows that you could or could not answer I guess <laughs> there's, there's always uh, there's always the how, how many stars are there and uh, the, the figure that I gave I, I give them as one that I last heard by a bunch of Australian astronomers but I'm, I'm sure that one is possibly out of date now and I ought to go away and look that, look that one back up again uh, my favourite question is always what happens if you fall into a black hole discuss all the possibilities of that and uh, it's always a good giggle to finish with the word spaghettification mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so yes they, 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 they come with some armed with some very very difficult questions I mean also really quite simplistic but, but quite searching ones the other day you know why is space black and again these are questions people don't think about mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and the answer to it is not a terribly complicated answer but again it's things that people don't think about and you do get the odd very very thoughtful child you know yeah. it's not nice so i guess what you're talking about there is is Olber's paradox as we would call it um, well I, I, the simplistic answer that i give to children is that there's nothing to reflect anything back it's as simple as that you know uh the, the, the what they see around them every day is light bouncing back into their eyes mm-hmm. and that if there's nothing there to reflect light then the light won't be bounced back at them it's as simple as that i think it's a very nice skill to be able to join the very complicated things such as that with the simple explanations of that i think it's a very impressive skill that hopefully we're working on with our outreach as well sometimes it's a good idea to be a teacher coming towards astronomy rather than it is to be perhaps an expert astronomer coming towards teaching you're far nearer the teaching aspects than you are the advanced aspects of astronomy you know, uh, as I say, there are those who know far more about astronomy than I do, but I'm able to I have enough knowledge to to cover what's typically asked. You know, the, the experience as a teacher to be able to translate it into into the understandable. So it's getting towards your next showtime now. So uh-huh. I'm sorry you weren't able to rest your voice during this period, <laughs> but um, uh, I'll I'll let you go and say so. Thank you very much. So thank you. Goodbye. Thanks very much. And next up, we welcome back Dr. Sarah Crowther as she talks to Ian about the evolution of the solar system. I'm Ian. I'm here at the Manchester Museum of Science and Industry, uh, where we're taking part in the Light Fantastic Outreach Day, where lots of people are talking about light and the way it impacts our lives and on their work. And I'm here with Sarah Crowther from the University of Manchester Isotope Geochemistry and Cosmochemistry Research Group. So if you'd like to start off by just telling us um, what you're talking about to people today and uh, how you found it. Our research is looking at the chemical and physical evolution of the solar system and a lot of the experiments we do are looking at meteorites. So we've brought along some meteorites today that visitors can look at through microscopes and that enables you to see the the minerals and the constituents that make up these meteorites. It's been a great day, we've been really busy all day. Um, Most people have been excited by the samples of the Moon and Mars but it seems to have gone really well. Okay, that sounds really nice. Have you had lots of engagement from people after things like the Philae mission? Has people been asking you about that and has it engaged well with it? That's, that's not something we've actually talked about much today, but it, yeah, it's um, around the time when it landed on the comet, there was lots of talk about it then. And that's a really great mission because we can learn more about comets from it. So you say you have some uh, samples of the Moon and Mars, so what fraction of the total samples on Earth are, belong to you? Oh, a tiny fraction. 
less less than one percent. We've just got a few bits of meteorite. Okay, so I know that a lot of the um, the bits of Moon will have come back from the Apollo missions. Is that correct? And yeah. then, so samples of Mars, where will they have come back from? The Apollo missions brought back about three hundred and so three hundred sixty or eighty. I don't recall kilograms from the Moon. But in addition to that, we have meteorites that have come from the moon. So that happens, some other object, an asteroid or a comet or something, hits the surface of the moon, blasts material off, and eventually it falls to Earth. And we have Martian meteorites, so the same process has happened. Something's hit the surface of Mars, blasted material off the surface, which generally sort of gets pulled in towards the centre of the solar system because of the gravity of the sun. And as we're orbiting around the sun, our path can cross the path of that material. And then we get a a meteorite on Earth that's come from Mars. So how distinctive are the different classifications you can make? I mean, is there an extremely large distinction that you can say this is definitely from Mars? And how far along the chain of those impacts can you track? So if you think that something has come from a Martian meteorite, do you know if maybe that arrived on Mars or was formed on Mars? Can you tell those kind of things? Yeah, so we look at uh, the isotopic composition of things. So isotopes are different forms of the same element. And the ratios of these different forms of the same element vary between different bodies. So we can say from looking at the isotope ratios, whether something's from the Moon or from Mars or from Earth or from an asteroid... So if we had a piece of meteorite that was an asteroid, it would be different from a piece from Mars. Are you able to uh, use those to give kind of formation dates for those as well? Uh, Some things, yes. Some of the work we do is dating meteorites. I do a lot of work with a technique called iodine xenon dating. So we're looking at processes happening in the first uh, sort of maybe 50, 60, up to 100 million years of the solar system, and we can date when different objects formed or when certain processes happened so i know there are a couple of competing theories about the kind of broad picture about how solar systems as ours form do you have any personal opinion on that that you're you feel like your your work has contributed to i think the most commonly accepted theory for the formation of the solar system is that it was from a big cloud of dust and gas called the solar nebula and the sun formed at the center of that and particles of dust and gas orbiting around coalesce to form planets so what what we're looking at is kind of the the other physical processes that were going on around this time and the timing of these events and do you feel like you've managed to um, give a good explanation to people here today do you feel like you've managed to transmit your research in a in a nice way i hope so i hope we've been successful lots of people have been very excited to hold the moon and mars and and that's good enough for me okay excellent that's that's great thank you very much Okay, and finally we have passed me again talking to Giles Johnson about the impact of different types of light on plant growth. Okay, so I'm at the Manchester Museum of Science and Industry today where they are having a a light fantastic day. Uh, I'm here with Giles Johnson who is a a biologist at the University of Manchester. Hi Giles. Hello. Um, So Giles has been uh, presenting a stand which talks about uh, different kinds of light and how they impact on plant growth. Um, So if you could tell us a little bit about that and how you've found today. Okay, so the starting point for our stand is the idea that plants need light to grow. So everybody knows that plants are green. And we are starting by talking to small children about what colours of plants, what colours of light do plants like. And if you ask children what colours of plants, what colours of light does a plant need to grow? They will automatically think green is the answer. 
And what we're showing them is actually that's wrong, it's the wrong way around, that what plants are doing is taking out other colours of light, particularly red and blue light, and green is the bit they can't use, which is why that's what we see. So we're doing a mixed stand where we're showing different colours of plant, different, different types of foliage, and talking about how those plants are able to capture light and the different ways in which they use light. So do you think that that is mostly driven by the chemistry of what plants are able to do? Or is it just a function of what light we get from the sun and is transmitted from the atmosphere? Or is it maybe an interplay between both? It's an interplay between both. So there would be no point in plants evolving to use um, electromagnetic radiation that wasn't making its way down to the surface of the Earth. At the same time, the energy they're absorbing has to be sufficiently high energy that can actually drive the chemical reactions that we want to drive. So photosynthesis is about... The primary reactions of photosynthesis involve taking water and splitting it to release oxygen and then remove electrons, which are used to reduce carbon to make sugars. And that's a, high energy, that's a very high energy requiring chemistry, very difficult chemistry to do. So you can't just take any old light and do that. But at the same time, it's the, the spectrum which makes it through the atmosphere and down to the Earth's surface, which is the most important for plant growth. So our... Uh what would you say are the, the key windows in the Earth's atmosphere which are most important for plant growth and would necessarily be, uh, 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 would necessarily be a requirement for plant growth, say, on other planets? Well, the, the plants which have evolved on this planet are primarily absorbing light in the range from about 400 up to about 618, well, up to 700 nanometers. So that's also coinciding with what we're using for our vision because that's the, the, ma- the big window in the atmosphere. Obviously, I'm not an atmospheric physicist. I don't know about these things. Um, there, are a few, there are a few algae which actually use, or, or photosynthetic bacteria, which actually use different wavelengths. They use longer wavelengths. So they're exploiting gaps which have been missed by the plants. So we can get certain bacteria which will absorb light up to about 800 nanometers into the um, far red. And presumably the, the morphology of the plants impacts on this as well. So is there usually... Uh are there reasonable correlations between the kind of morphology that you get in plants and the kinds of photosynthesis that they do, or the kinds of, sorry, between the morphologies that you get in the plants and the kinds of light that they use as well? Do those two things usually relate? Well, you get different morphologies depending on the amount of light that plants get. So if we think about a tree, a tree has a canopy of leaves which are arranged to optimise the light capture. So they're trying to grow so the, le- the leaves are not overlapping too much, Um, so that there's a a sort of even distribution of light through the canopy so that all the leaves get enough light that it's worth them growing. At the same time, if you look underneath the canopy, if you look, say, on a forest floor, you don't get so much vegetation, but you still get plants growing. And they have um, adapted their photosynthesis to suit those particular conditions. So they change, for example, there are two types of chlorophyll which you find in higher plants, chlorophyll A and chlorophyll B. If you look at trees, they will tend to have a lot of chlorophyll A, relatively little chlorophyll B. Plants for growing on the forest floor will tend to have more chlorophyll B because that takes slightly different wavelengths of light. So it actually takes, on the blue side of the spectrum, it takes more into the green, and on the red side of the spectrum, it takes more into the orange. So they're optimizing their, their spectrum, their, their activation spectrum, their action spectrum for light to suit the environment they're growing in. They can only do that up to a certain extent, though. So they'll also have morpholo- morphological differences. So, for example, a plant growing in low light will have thin leaves because there's no point in making a fat leaf because light is not going to penetrate through the layers of cells. So uh, I will ask, um, what has been the, your favourite question which you've been asked by a member of public today? Uh, either which you could answer or which you couldn't answer. <laughs> hmm, I have to think about that one. Uh, I've been flummoxed by something. I'm trying to remember what it was now. Something completely flummoxed me. Um, 
think I'm going to have to pass on that one because my mind is going to, my mind is a blank at the moment. So, other than that question, well, <laughs> other than the question of what question is, well, I, was, I was asked. There was a gentleman who came and asked me at some length about um, topics like terraforming Mars, for example. So, what would be the requirements to get plants to grow on another planet, and what would be the challenges? He was thinking about it more from the perspective of disease. So, if we take species from Earth and take them onto a different, either take them into space to go on a space station or take them to a different planet, um, we would almost certainly be carrying pathogens with us we would be taking a very narrow range of species and a very na- narrow genetic diversity. So there would be a significant danger that we could be producing populations which wouldn't be very robust when it came to coping with diseases. That was something which was completely left field. I wasn't expecting to talk about that, but it was a really interesting to talk to members of the public and explore these kind of issues, which I wouldn't necessarily think about for my own research. So I find that the members of the public are very good at pushing the boundaries of the particular very small sphere of stuff that I know about in my research, so, so that's very good. Yeah. Um, so it's nearly the end of the day now, so I'll let you get back to tidying up and going home. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that, Ian. I think that that last interview really shows how one of the nice things about Mozu is also that we got to meet people doing lots of different things. So there was um, someone there from, I think, it's either the University of Birmingham or Aston University who had a laser harp as well which oh, cool. is really really cool how did that work we what were trying that? to get an interview but we didn't have <laughs> um... I was very impressed with uh, Giles's willingness for me to shoehorn as much astronomical aspects as possible into that <laughs> discussion as well why because he, he was talking about plants was it mm-hmm. something oh yeah no because um they do all kinds of things with uh, with lasers and different types. Of, I, I knew one fellow um, who was doing his PhD on uh, the impact of shining different frequencies of laser uh, at frogs. Um, so not like James Bond style lasers that would, you know, burn them. Um, just uh, <laughs> regular lasers that I don't think they noticed. Um, but they, they had all these frogs and they would just point these different lasers at them and... Uh, See I'd, what the frogs did. Yeah, see what the frogs did. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Uh, he used to he used to go on all these field trips to like the Galapagos and stuff to collect oh, more wow. frogs for for his research, or I think his supervisor did or something. I don't know. Uh, he, he took the frogs to the laser rather than the lasers to the frogs, though. Uh, oh, I don't That's know. Question: I don't know which of the one of those is easier because it depends yeah. on how big your laser is. I'd say take the frog to the laser. To the laser would be better because if say something happened to your data, you'd have to just keep on going back to the frogs, and you might not That's be able true. to find the same frog again. Mm-hmm. And, you know. It's, but yeah, there's um, uh, all different kinds of, of outreach events happening in uh, Manchester this um, summer. So there's, I think there's kind of been a, a growth of outreach now in science because there's yeah. a big movement which is part of also seeing science as a part of culture. Yeah. Which I think is, is so it's something to be valued in its own right as, as something people can enjoy rather than just yeah, something absolutely. that pushes forward society. Um, and of course this year Manchester is the European City of Science so there's a lot going on. Um, just um, recently, a, a lot of us were all at the Trafford Centre for the weekend as part of the science extravaganza. So that included people from across the engineering and physical sciences faculty in the University of Manchester. So there were some people from the engineering departments who had like a they had a race car and they had a flight simulator. Um, they looked, I'll admit, slightly more professional than we did. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I thought, you know, we, it was it was still quite a fun couple of days, um, and we took along some of the similar demos um, along there. There's some good pictures on Twitter and stuff. Yeah, and, I heard um, um, George had an infrared camera, and mm-hmm. uh, people people were excited about that. Mm-hmm. That those are always fun. Um, um, yeah, there's lots of good selfies of people with a gravitational lens in front of their face. <laughs> Wait, hang on, no. 
a gravitational not lens. Not a real gravitational, gravitational lens. Yeah. Just a regular lens. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we, we were calling it gravitational okay, lens. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> it, it was especially made in order to mimic the properties of a it's gravitational true. lens. Was it really? It wasn't mm-hmm. just a off-the-shelf e- lens. Even better than the, bottle of a, at the bottom of a wine glass. Seriously? Uh, yeah. That's cool. Do we have it? Is it here? Can it's I see it? It's at the Georgia Bank Discovery Centre. Uh, so if someone visits there, they can see it. Um, or actually, if um, so another Pint of Science event that's happening in May is Pint of Science, which was talked about a bit in the last episode. Oh, that's right. Um, and the festival for that is coming up in May. And one of the nights is actually... So Tim is speaking. Um, and one of the kind of... Uh, there's like a one night which is very clearly like physics physics and chemistry themed and tim's speaking that night i'm helping to organize one of the technology some of the technology themed nights and i've managed to shoehorn in some astronomy so we've got one night where sarah bridal and mick mitch michelijah are talking about their work and i've managed to grab that handheld gravitational lens for that event as well that's that's really good to shoehorn astronomy into technology because mm. um the, the more of a link is seen between those two fields, uh, the mm. more funding we will get. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, technology is really a part of it as well. So yeah. I think Mitch is going to talk about yep. the SKA, which, you know, there's so many technological challenges yeah. with that, even yeah, just absolutely. Like, how, how they're going to deal with the amount of data, yeah. things like that. And then um, Sarah, I think, is going to talk about some of her work on lensing and yeah. a lot of that image processing crops in other areas of technology as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. So well, that's it. I mean, um, I know someone who did his PhD in, you know, radio imaging and then, you know, was thinking about maybe going into like medical imaging or something mm. like that. And, and really, you know, it's surprising what you can apply this kind of stuff to um, that isn't astronomy at all. So that's mm-hmm. cool. I, I went to a conference um, about a year ago, which was completely between radio imaging and medical imaging. <laughs> some different perspectives that came out of that were one of the artifacts that the medical imaging people were talking about was due to um, people wriggling whilst um, ah, uh, having these images taken. My reaction was, well, just strap them down tighter then. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously forgetting that these are people and you can't just do that. I'm um, used to sources that don't well, fly yeah, back. No, I, uh, um, I was with some people at a conference once and, and one of them overheard um, a conversation between two other astronomers. You know, they were looking at some images of a source and the one said to the other, he was like, you know, do you trust it? And the other said, well... <sighs> I wouldn't want my doctor to be using it to diagnose me with anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, uh, but yeah, no, they do, they do overlap. And, and in a sense, like some people who do a lot of observational work, um, you almost get to the point where you're not, you don't even really care what you're imaging. What you care about is making a good image <laughs> and people just get really good at that. <laughs> uh, so it transfers easily. So um, we've got some other events kind of coming up that we thought we'd mention where some of us from the department will be taking part in doing various outreach activities although we're not necessarily sure exactly what those will be yet so one of those is the blue dot festival which is going to be on the 22nd to the 24th of july so it's a big music festival out of Dredrill, but they're also going to have lots of stands doing science outreach uh-huh. i think if you speak to the organizers their approach is very much like once we get people in there we get them to do science because they can't leave yeah. <laughs> um, so i think ian you knew a bit more about like who some of the music acts were and stuff who were headlining yes so i can say well I've mostly been interested in the one that I'm interested in, which is Caribou, um, because uh, they're an excellent band who I've liked for a very long time. Uh, it's also true that uh, the man, Dan Snaith, who constitutes Caribou, uh, has a maths PhD as well, so there is okay. maybe a tenuous overlap between that and some of the outreach things that <laughs> yes, maybe going Maybe on. we can get him to do some outreach. Yeah, maybe he can be yeah. more 
more persuadable to do some math things on stage as yeah. well. Um, <laughs> so, I should, so we probably should say that Blue Dot is a, um, you have to buy a ticket to go to Blue Dot, but there are lots of free outreach events going on across the city um, this summer. And I'd recommend looking at the European City of Science website because most of it's listed on there. So when we did the Jodcast Live, it went on that website and most things were found on there and it has the prices and the locations and the typical age ranges as well. So you know whether or not it's, you know, aimed at kids or aimed at adults. Um, so I definitely have a look at that because there is so much going on. Um, they're even doing around, around uh, other departments in the university. They're doing like lab tours and stuff. So I was going to oh, cool. go on one because I really want to see what I never get to go in a lab because um, all my work is on a computer. So I, I, I'd like to go. Yeah, in a lab. I vaguely remember being on a lab tour in in University College Cork uh, which is the town where I grew up uh, like as a little kid um, I think they did an open day where like they opened up some mm-hmm. of the labs and I remember like I was so small like I think you couldn't go in but you could look in the windows or something god that sounds really sad <laughs> anyway because all I remember is my father holding me up to the window so I could see and it just looked like oh, just that's adorable yeah no it was fascinating uh, I really wanted to go in and it smelled nice you know it had this kind of science smell okay. <laughs> has the, the smell been what has kept you coming back pretty science? much yeah yeah that whole building smelled like that because I ultimately went and did my undergrad there and uh, that, that was one of the main appeals it's just like I like the way it smells and that was the only thing you would like about that building okay. it was this awful kind of 70s you know asbestos tower and uh, maybe, but it, maybe we should try and bottle some of that smell and take it to our outreach I just spray it at people yeah. <laughs> I think it's mostly asbestos to be fair so maybe, 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 we, sh- maybe we shouldn't do that <laughs> I have this great image of you in my head walking into a building and like taking a deep breath and going <gasps> science <laughs> that was <laughs> kind of what of it was day. like yeah. <laughs> um uh, but yeah, no, um, there's there's a ton of stuff going on. In fact, I've been uh, asked to participate, and I'm not sure if I'm going to do this or not, but I've been asked to do um, a Bright Club event. Oh, the comedy. Oh, yeah, right. so Bright Amazing. Club is great. I've been to one, and it was hilarious. It's where researchers sta- do stand-up comedy um, based around their research and, uh, and and do stand up comedy really really well. They're amazing. They're so um, funny. I've um, been to stand up comedy nights, which are just stand up comedy nights, which was significantly less funny. I mean, yeah. I know I'm part of the audience that maybe gets some of the jokes. <laughs> yeah, the well, that's it. I think but... there's a lot of kind of nerdy in jokes, and you know, a lot of them are PhD students. And uh, I mean, there's something kind of inherently funny about doing a PhD, anyway. You know, you just. Um... <laughs> 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 a lot of way to deal with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've just got to laugh if or you otherwise. Didn't laugh, you'd cry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we cry a lot too though, so you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm not sure if I'll do it or not because um, cuz it is the, I mean the the standard is amazing. I would be super intimidated because they're absolutely hilarious. Uh, so. I think you'd do fine. Do you? I don't know. I don't I don't see myself as being very funny though. I mean, people laugh at me all the time, but I'm not sure what it is that I'm saying to make that happen. <laughs> maybe maybe we can add this to as a question to the yeah. uh, podcast yeah. listener survey. Yeah. I'll mention later. Yeah. Um, is Fiona funny? Yes or no? <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> that makes me nervous. <laughs> anyway, moving on from outreach to outer space, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for May 2016. As we'll see, we have two real highlights this month, so keep listening. Well, as night falls during May, over towards the southwest, we'll see Leo, below which, of course, is the brightest object in the sky at the time, Jupiter, down to the lower left of Regulus, Alpha Leonis. Over then, towards the south, is a fairly 
blank region of sky contains the constellation of Virgo, above which is Coma Berenices. And the only really bright star, not that far above the horizon, is Spica in Virgo. But between Virgo and the tail of Leo is a wonderful area of the sky called the Realm of the Galaxies. It's a wonderful place to observe with perhaps a six-inch telescope on a dark sky when there's no moon. But one will see one bright star slightly to the east of south. That is Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. And just to the left, actually, is a nice little circlet of stars called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. Then you might pick up Hercules on the way towards the second bright star you'll see towards the east with his Vega in Lyra. Again, with binoculars or a small telescope, if you look at what's called the keystone of Hercules, the four brightest stars, and you go up two-thirds of the way on the right-hand side, hopefully you'll spot a wonderful globular cluster called M13. And then, finally, beyond Lyra, we begin to see Deneb, the brightest star in Cygnus the Swan. And perhaps just on the horizon a little bit later, we see Altair. And Altair, Vega and Deneb form what we call the Summer Triangle. So perhaps this month we're heading towards the summer. Well, let's have a look at the planets first. Jupiter is now a little bit past its best, but it's still high in the south at nightfall. Its brightness falls slightly from magnitudes minus 2.3 to minus 2.1, whilst the angular size drops from 41 to 37 arc seconds. It spends a month below the hindquarters of Leo, halting its retrograde motion westwards across the sky on May the 9th. It sets around 4am as May begins, but by 2am by month's end. And of course, with a small telescope, one should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, and in the highlights section of the night sky page, just put in Bank night sky, I actually list the times, when I think it's dark, when the red spot will be facing the Earth. And you also, of course, might see any of up to four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Saturn is rising in the late evening, in fact about 30 minutes after Mars at the beginning of May. We're getting closer, so its brightness increases slightly from plus 0.2 to 0.0 magnitudes. At the same time, the angular size grows to 18.4 arc seconds. Saturn's rings are tilted by 26 degrees from the line of sight, almost as open as they ever get, and span some 42 arc seconds across. It's moving towards opposition on the night of June the 2nd. Saturn forms a triangle with Mars and Antares throughout the month, separated from Mars by 8 degrees as May begins, and by 15 degrees as months end. As Saturn moves very slowly across the heavens, it stays a near constant distance up and to the left of Antares in Scorpius. Well, the top highlight this month is the transit of Mercury on May the 9th, but otherwise it'll be too dim and low above the horizon to see. Now Mars, well, that's our second highlight of the month. It reaches its closest point to the Earth on May the 29th, and that's over the last 11 years. Its angular size, then, 
will be 18.6 arc seconds. It actually begins May with an angular size of 16 arc seconds with a magnitude of minus 1.5, but then it brightens until it reaches a peak magnitude of minus 2.1 at the end of the month, so equaling the magnitude of Jupiter for a few days. Mars is in retrograde motion westwards across the sky. It's lying low in Scorpius, beginning the month five degrees north of Antares and passing between Beta and Delta Scorpii on the 19th as it moves towards Libra. Now Venus is heading towards superior conjunction with the Sun, and that means on the far side, and that will be on June the 2nd, so it's not actually visible during May. Well, what about the highlights? Well, May the 9th, the transit of Mercury across the face of the Sun. We will, if clear in the UK, be able to witness the complete passage of Mercury's disk across the Sun's face. The transit begins soon after 11 hours UT, the midpoint at about 14.58 UT, and Mercury leaves the Sun's disk at 18.42 UT, a total time of about seven and a half hours. This is Mercury's first transit since 2006, and I was lucky enough to see it then, and the next will occur on November the 11th, 2019, but in fact will not be so easily visible from the UK. These three are three of the 13 or 14 transit of Mercury that occur each century. Mercury's black disk will appear only 10 arc seconds across, so binoculars or a telescope will be needed to observe the transit. If direct viewing is to be made, suitable solar filters must be placed in front of the objectives, the two of the binoculars or the single one of the telescope. And filters made of Bada solar film are probably best. One must, of course, be very, very careful whenever observing the sun. Alternatively, an image of the sun can be projected onto a white card using a small telescope or half a binocular. A metal eyepiece is really needed to prevent heat damage, and it's probably best to limit the aperture of a telescope to about one inch across using a cardboard mask. At first glance, Mercury's disk might at just one two hundredth that of the sun appear like a sunspot but it'll be precisely round be even darker than a sunspot and will lack a grey penumbra and of course it'll be moving across the sun's disk hopefully if it's clear it'll be interesting to watch the ingress and exit of mercury's disk taking about three minutes and twelve seconds to do so we'll keep our fingers crossed shall we so the second highlight is from around May the 22nd to June the 8th, Mars at its best for 11 years. Mars reaches opposition, that is when the Earth lies between the Sun and Mars, and when it be approximately due south at midnight UT, or 1am BST, and that's on the 22nd of May, so it'll be visible for most of the hours of darkness. However, it'll actually be closest to Earth and so have its greatest angular size of 18.6 arc seconds some eight days later, on the 29th, 30th of May. The angular size at closest approach varies due to the ellipticity of the orbit of Mars, and to a far lesser extent to that of the Earth, will actually reach 26 arc seconds during the year 25,695 AD. <laughs> 
At closest approach in 2003, Mars reached an angular size of 25.1 arc seconds, its largest angular diameter for about 60,000 years. In July 2018, it will reach 24.2 arc seconds, which is quite good. But the trouble is, for both this opposition and that in 2018, Mars is and will be very low in the ecliptic, and hence at a low elevation as seen from the UK. So the atmosphere will limit our views of the red, actually, I'd say salmon pink, planet. Happily, it'll be higher in the sky at the opposition of 2020. You can find out what aspect of Mars should be visible at any time using an application done by Sky and Telescope. You can find it details on the Night Sky page. It's http colon two forward slashes is.gb forward slash Mars Profiler. So I've looked at that and you can see when the Certis Major might be facing you and other of the more obvious aspects of Mars. I've listed the times during May when Jupiter's great red spot will be facing the Earth. Obviously, there are rather fewer this month because there's not so much darkness. On May the 5th and the 6th, before dawn, we have a chance of seeing the Eta Aquarid meteor shower. It's actually one of the finest meteor showers that can be seen from the southern hemisphere. But I'm afraid it's rather low in the sky for us. It may be glimpsed, the meteors that is, in the pre-dawn sky in the southeast some 90 minutes before dawn. Quite pleasingly, this year the peak corresponds to new moon, so there'll be no moonlight to hinder our view. Well, on May the 7th, there's a nice grouping of Saturn, Mars and Antares just looking to the south-southwest in the hours before sunrise. Saturn is above and Mars to the upper right, close to Antares in Scorpius. Another nice thing to look for on the 7th, after sunset, if it's clear, and if you've got a good low horizon in the west-northwest, you may be able to spot a very thin, waxing crescent moon, just 1% illuminated. You may well need to use binoculars, but please do not use them until the sun has set. And a nice thing that we can sometimes see with such a thin crescent is what is called earthshine, with the other part of the moon's surface illuminated by light reflected from the Earth. And on the Night Sky website, I've actually put a picture of Earthshine that I took at the Isle of Wight Star Party in 2012 with a telescope that's particularly suitable for the job. And it's actually one of my best ever photographs. It did actually win an award last year. So that's May the 7th after sunset. Finally, I usually put an interesting object on the moon to observe and on the 14th and 27th the terminator is quite close to what's called the hygienus rill for some time a debate raged as to whether the craters on the moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity we now know that virtually all were caused by impact but it's thought that the hygienus crater that lies at the center of the hygienus rill may well be volcanic in origin it's an 11 kilometer wide rimless pit in contrast, of course, to craters which have raised rims. And its close association with the rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar events. It can quite easily be seen to be surrounded by dark material. It's thought that came from an explosive release of dust and gas, which created a vacant space below, 
so the overlying surface collapsed, so forming the crater. Okay, thanks for that, Ian. And for our listeners below the equator, here's our southern hemisphere night sky with Haritina Mogasani. Clear skies from Space Place at Kasher Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. My name is Haritina Mogoshanu, and tonight I am your storyteller from the Southern Hemisphere. In Maori, Tahi, Rua, Toru means one, two, three. Three bright planets and the brightest stars share the evening sky this May, and you can see them in three ways when you look at the sky with the naked eye with a pair of binoculars and with a telescope. I love each of these methods. They are each in their way very special and each add a layer of depth to the previous one, which is why I always recommend to people to never buy a telescope unless they have got naked eye stargazing or binocular observing sorted. Otherwise, it would be too frustrating to look for all these deep sky objects. Besides, wouldn't you want to know where you were looking, even with a go-to telescope, which is what most modern telescopes are. They just find their way across the sky and would not feel that much fun not to know where I'm pointing the lens. Not to mention that any go-to telescope needs to be polar aligned. That is a part making the mount of the telescope would have to be aligned with Earth's axis of rotation in order for the go-to function to work. So what can we see with the naked eye in May? Soon after sunset, circumpolar Atutahi Canopus, the second brightest star, is southwest of the point directly above you overhead. Tahi means one in Maori, suggesting that Atutahi is the chief of the stars and visible all night long. Takurua Sirius, the brightest star, appears northwest of the zenith. Rua means two in Maori, and Takurua is one of the two wives of Ra, the sun. Below Takurua are bluish Puanga, or Raijo, and reddish Putara, or Betelgeuse, the brightest stars in Orion. Between them is a vertical line made of three stars, Tautoru. Toru means three in Maori, and it's the name given to Orion's belt. The three planets in the sky are, in order of appearance, Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn. Golden Jupiter appears in the north. It's the brightest starlight object in May and lights up the night until the early hours of the morning, the wee hours, as they say here in New Zealand. Orange Mars comes up in the east just after sunset. It will be at opposition on 22nd, which also means that Mars will be very bright. The term opposition can be a little confusing, but what opposition actually relates to, it's the way we see Mars from Earth as it sits directly opposite to the Sun, with the Earth between them. In May 2016, Mars rises in the east just as the Sun sets in the west. Then, after staying up in the sky the entire night, Mars sets in the west just as the sun rises in the east. Since Mars and the sun appear on opposite sides of the sky, we say that Mars is in opposition. Also, if Earth and Mars followed perfectly circular orbits, opposition would be as close as the two planets could get, 
but their orbits are neither circular nor coplanar, coplanar meaning in the same plane. So the closest approach between Mars and Earth in almost 60,000 years occurred during 2003, which I vividly remember for two reasons. One was that I got the chance to draw Mars through a telescope for an entire week during one of our famous astrocamps and felt a bit like a late Schiaparelli observing all the dark and light features on it, including having my very first attempt at drawing Sirtis Major. The second reason was that ever since 2003 I witnessed an impressive amount of spam mail letting people know that Mars will be seen in the sky as big as the full moon. Remember that email? It is known as the Mars hoax and even though the amount of spam diminished dramatically since then, there is the occasional blip which I hope not to see again as I will probably be tempted to unfriend the person who sent it. What can each of us do to prevent things like this from happening? One of the things I do is outreach. Astrocamps are amazing opportunities to do outreach. I remember my first one as it was yesterday. We went for an entire week in this very dark location near Trgovište in 2003. We had many visitors who were curious to see what we were doing and we were happy to see them even when they drove with the headlights on right in the middle of our observing party. Outreach is extremely important in astronomy and space science. Probably my favorite sound of all sounds is when I hear the wow that comes after people seeing Saturn. It's as if they teleport into another world and the most frequent comment is how Saturn looks so much like Saturn. I've been continuously doing outreach since then, since those magical nights at the 2003 Astro Camp, to bringing together a team from NASA and students and teachers from New Zealand in 2015 in an expedition that looked for extreme life on Earth called Space Rebound. Share your passion for stars, even if you think you only know a tiny thing about them. I will always remember everyone who heard for the first time that we are made of stars and that because of it everything we dream about might be just possible. Stars and space are best hooks I have ever encountered to motivate people to be curious about who they are, what is life, if there are others out there and what is the future of humankind. And I believe that the last one is the most beautiful question of all because of the legacy that it leaves. I would love to think that humankind will survive past the 4.5 billion years left from our sun to burn and hope that it might actually be possible to do so. Imagine that this is the one thing that could unite people in realizing how unique we are, that extinction is forever and that we only have one home right now called the pale blue dot. Our small astro camp reached a good amount of people on a personal level who would have known that little me who was drawing a distant Mars through the telescope would end up one day doing Mars analog missions at the Mars Desert Research Station, MDRS in Utah, and linked to students and teachers in New Zealand thanks to Carter Observatory Space Place acting as mission control. Space Place at Carter was stellar, for the lack of a better word, in helping with the outreach effort and served as mission control, 
From there, school groups could link with us on Mars and communicate live. We did not use the time delay necessary when talking with the real Mars. But the students had the chance to ask all the wacky questions that kids can ask about space exploration and also all the amazingly serious and scientific questions we all know they come up with. Space Place at Carter also supplemented our Mars theme with shows and talks. Analog sites in Utah were chosen that looked like the real Mars and with similarities in New Zealand so that the students were able to replicate the experiment almost in their backyard. Having the Space Place at Carter Observatory backing up this effort was very rewarding. As a consequence, Mars was intensely studied in the classroom because of the combined outreach effort. It took a bit of our engineering to bring it all together, just like in The Martian, but we made it through whilst keeping everyone happy. The expertise we gained during the missions helped to bring science to the classroom by using space as a hook via the observatory. And who would have thought that there was going to come another day when another one of my outreach missions would have gone global during the World Space Week 2013, when we broadcast from MDRS globally and the stones we collected from around the world mixed with a real meteorite from Mars were immortalized in beautiful Swarovski crystals, out of which three were sent to the International Space Station with astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti. I did not even dream about all these things, but it all happened to me because I love talking about the stars and because people love hearing about the stars. They do. And they love hearing that they are made from the stars. So anyway, back to what really happens in the sky. During opposition, Earth passes between Mars and the Sun. This occurs only every 26 months because Earth makes two trips around the Sun in about the same amount of time that Mars takes to make one trip. Sometimes, like now, we will be on the same side of the Sun as Mars at opposition. Some other time, we will be on the opposite side. Go figure. And when Mars is on the opposite of opposition, it will actually be hidden behind the Sun as it comes between us and Mars, which is the time when communications with Mars are avoided as there is a lot of interference from the Sun. As the sky darkens, Saturn appears below Mars. Mercury is very close to the Sun in May, so not visible from anywhere in the world with one exception. This is why I will only just mention a spectacular event which enchants the clear skies viewers from everywhere else but East Asia, Japan, Indonesia, Australia and New Zealand. On Monday, 9th of May 2016, starting at 11.15pm New Zealand Standard Time, most of the world will be able to see the planet Mercury transiting across the disk of the Sun. From Earth, we can only see Mercury and Venus transiting the Sun, as these two planets are in between Earth and the Sun. There are about 13 to 14 transits of Mercury in a century, and they all occur within a few days from May the 8th and November the 10th. We will not be able to see this one for the simple reasons that it happens during our nighttime. We can, however, still watch it online from New Zealand as several different webcasts will cover the transit. The event will last for 7 hours, so we have time for a nap too. 
back again to things we can see in the sky, crooks, the southern cross is southeast of the zenith to the right of the pointers. Alpha and Beta Centauri. Zenith refers to an imaginary point directly above a particular location on the imaginary celestial sphere. Orange Antares, right of Mars, marks the body of Scorpius, the scorpion. Antares means rival to Mars in Greek, for the planet and star are often similar in color and brightness, but not at this time of the year. The Milky Way, our edgewise view of the galaxy, is brightest in the southeast towards Scorpius and Sagittarius, where its center lies, and it can be traced up the sky past the pointers and crooks fading towards Sirius. Its nearby outer edge is by Orion, where the Milky Way is faintest. The clouds of Magellan, Large Magellanic Cloud and Small Magellanic Cloud, are two small galaxies midway down the southern sky, easily seen by eye on a dark moonless night. If you use your peripheral vision, which means don't try to stare directly at them, using the edge of your vision out of the corner of your eye will reveal more detail. It's a trick we use in stargazing and has to do with how our eyes are constructed. Night vision is mostly based on our rod cells, the ones responsible with detecting movement, which is also something we see very well with the edge of our vision. Once you've mastered the naked eye observing, it's time to try the next level, binoculars. What can we see with a pair of binoculars? Binoculars come in many shapes and forms. A great size for stargazing is 7 by 50 or 10 by 50. The first number is a measure of power. It means how much these binoculars magnify, in this case the 7 and the 10. The second number is the diameter of the objective, the big lenses at the front in millimeters, in this case the 50. I love binoculars, they are my favorite aids to observing the night sky because they are light, you can take them easily with you on trips, they don't really require assembly and disassembly, no polar alignment, and visually are better than telescopes. With a tripod attached, they are truly magnificent. Comets and some open star clusters are sometimes better observed with binoculars. We have two eyes, so binocular views are more spectacular in many regards than telescopic, because our brains interpret what we see. Binoculars give depth of view as they engage both eyes in the process. There are few great objects that you could admire in binoculars, for instance Jupiter and its four moons, also on the ecliptic M44, the Presepi in Cancer, known as the Beehive, the open cluster swarms with stars. It is as far as 577 light years and estimated 730 million years old with an average magnitude of 3.5. Also in Cancer, M37, it's another open cluster, one of the oldest known, almost 3.2 billion years. Another good target for binoculars is Leo, marked by the bright Jupiter. Jupiter is 750 million kilometers away, so it is always worth a look. Its four big Galilean moons look like faint stars near the planet. One or two can be seen in binoculars. All four are easily seen in any telescope magnifying 20 or more. Sometimes one or more of the moons will be invisible as they pass in front of or behind Jupiter. 
The Moon is another very good binocular object and it will be near Jupiter on the 15th of May. Close to the area south of the triangle that marks Leo's hips, M65, M66 and NGC3628, which will be visible depending on the size of your binoculars, are also good objects. They are also known as the Leo Trio. Also in Leo, M105 is an elliptical galaxy. Last but not least, M96, another galaxy in Leo, lies at about 35 million light years away. At the beginning of May, Jupiter sets around 2 a.m., reducing to around midnight by month's end, and so you may want to look at these objects in Leo in the first part of the night. If everything else fails, simply take your binoculars and swipe the Milky Way from one edge to the other. You might not figure out exactly which objects you were looking at, but you would definitely find amazing sights, especially in the region close to Carina. You will find these open clusters IC2602, NGC314, NGC353, NGC2516. As I said, they are all in Carina, and then in Crooks, NGC4755, which is another open cluster, NGC2451 in Puppies, and IC2391 in Vela. Lower down, Omega Centauri is a globular cluster in Centaurus and in Scorpius. There are the Butterfly Cluster, M7 Open Cluster, and NGC6231 Open Cluster. Saturn is a great sight even with a pair of binoculars and this time its rings are near maximum tilt. It is 1.360 million kilometers away. Titan, its biggest moon, orbits four ring diameters from the planet. You might also be able to see Titan in binoculars. One of my bibles in terms of what to see in the night sky, it's Philips's Night Sky Atlas by Robin Schedule and with maps by Will Tyrion. And every time someone asks me what telescope to buy and I ask them back if they do have a pair of binoculars, if the answer is no, then I always say don't buy a telescope if you have not looked at the sky with binoculars. Even if you only use them to locate objects that are too faint for the naked eye or hidden by light pollution. Some of the best views of the largest star clusters, bright nebulae and comets are best seen in binoculars. My first binocular was called Li. That is because according to the Chinese wisdom, a road of 1000 Li starts with the first step. I used to be very scared of the dark, but I never felt small, insignificant and vulnerable when I saw the vastness of the universe. I never felt lost among a myriad of stars. I have always been basking in starlight and I've always been curious to know why it feels so good. I believe that by looking at the stars we can find out who we were, who we are and most importantly who we will become. This concludes our podcast for May 2016 at Space Place at Carter Observatory. As the Maori say, Efitia nana fetuotarangi, the stars are shining in the sky, kotakoto akenei kopapatuanuku, whilst Mother Earth lays beneath. May you enjoy clear and dark skies, 
so that you can see the stars and remember that we are made of the same stardust as they are. Kia kaha and clear skies from the space place at Carter Observatory in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Thanks for that, Haritina. And now we're on to the feedback. So um, we have some posts. We have two bits of posts uh, this time around. Um, that's really exciting. Uh, so two postcards. Uh, so the first one um, has a picture on it of sunrise on Maui and this this kind of cactus thing, uh, which honestly is, is rather unsettling, but kind of beautiful. Um, <laughs> uh, it's very lovely. It's making me want to go to Maui. Isn't, isn't there a telescope on Maui? No, no, that's know. Mauna Kea. Um, but Maui's in Hawaii too, isn't it? There'll be a stamp on it and a postmark. Uh, there is a stamp. It just says USA Forever, but that doesn't tell us much. If it's called Maui and uh, it's in America. That's true. Hawaii. It's a really nice stamp, actually. Um, it's a special stamp and it's a circular stamp. Um, it's really lovely with a picture of the moon in the middle. Uh, so that's really cool. I used oh, to wow. collect. I used to collect stamps when I was a little kid. So I would have been Aww. all over this. Uh, it's like a subclass of our Jodcast post. Do we have a collection of astronomy themed stamps as well? Oh, that's such a good idea! <gasps> oh my god, that is really cool. That's what oh. I'll do next time my supervisor's away. <laughs> so, <laughs> While the cat's away. <laughs> has this been mentioned before? In so, the last episode. Uh, okay. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, it says, Hi, Jodcast team. I'm loving your work. I always listen to the Jodcast in the gym. Regards, Keith Black. Uh, and then he draws attention. He says, P.S. Special stamp. And yeah, it is very special. It's lovely. Um, I like that he listens to us in the gym. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I, I listen to podcasts in the gym sometimes too. It's a I handy used to watch way. the Bake Off. It's motivation. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. It's great. Okay, so the second piece of post... Um, uh, it's from a little closer to home. Um, it says, Jodcasters, I think I've listened to every episode. They're all available. Love the shows. Keep up the good work. I have a question. What would you personally most like to find using the Lovell Telescope? What are you most hoping to learn? All the best. Ben Harding, Dover, Kent. And actually, so we put that question up on our whiteboard in the tea room. Um, yes. Uh, and we got we got a very spirited response. Yes. So <laughs> possibly as context, this this whiteboard is usually used for um, joke and sarcastic banter between yes. JBCA astronomers. Yes. Um, um, it's it's kind of like an outlet for our collective misery and cynicism. <laughs> Um, on, on days when we're feeling miserable and cynical, because because that's not all the time. Which um, are few and far between. Mostly, we're really happy. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we got we got some uh, we got some really nice responses though. So um, uh, one person says a job. Always good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're, we we're, we're all looking for those. <laughs> as well uh, as... Not immediately, but but often, you know, we're, when we're finishing up our PhDs, that's uh, something we all want. Someone else said they wanted the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Who is Kaiser Soze? Was one of the other. Uh, Less serious responses. <laughs> That's not a uh, what will you find question, though. <laughs> you might find out who Kaiser Sose is. I suppose, yeah, yeah. Is it written in the stars? Oh, maybe. Uh, like, he's in, from, like in a Disney film. He's the one from yeah. The Usual Suspects, which I've never seen. Yeah. It's now making me kind of want to watch that. Okay. Yes. Um, so one of the, I think, more serious answers was mazes. So like lasers, but in the microwave part of the spectrum. Um, although someone did add a comment next to that in brackets saying sharks with lasers. So I think they might have gone astray somewhere in uh, yeah, astronomy courses. 
Mazes are really cool. Mazes can tell you loads of stuff about like how the the, the galaxy is structured and things because they emit from certain different parts. And uh, I also oh. just can't get over that they they just happen naturally like that. Yeah, that I yeah, can't. it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, no, I went to I went to an EVN conference once and uh, there was a big huge session of Mazes, so I learned lots of stuff about Mazes and they're uh, surprisingly entertaining. Some of the other less serious answers include Beagle too. Uh, always a little bit sad, um, as well as constant massive radio frequency interference. Don't use your phones at George Orwell. Um, <laughs> oh, um, and finally, a less serious one. Intelligent life, there's none here. Uh, okay, so let's move on to the other feedback that we got this month. So we also got an email this month from Francis, um, who said they were really looking forward to contributing to our survey, which we're going to talk a little bit more about um, just after this email. Um, but they also said, all I can say is Jod on. I absolutely love this Jodcast. I listen while I go hiking, and whenever I see a new episode appear on my phone, I really look forward to my walk. And they also gave me some really good feedback on what they think about the Jodcast, which is fantastic. Um, so um, may as well talk about the survey now, actually, since we've now actually, it's now live on the internet, and you can now contribute. Yes, so... Um... I've been helping put this together, so I guess I can say a little bit more about it. Uh, so I believe uh, six or seven years ago, there was uh, a survey done of Jodcast listeners, uh, partially to find out exactly who it is we're talking to, um, and also to find out what those people actually think of us and how useful we are in doing what we're trying to do. Um, so we will be running that again uh, this year. So if you go to jodcast.net forward slash survey, then you will find... Uh, hopefully a nice, easy-to-use survey, um, which includes questions uh, both about you and who you are, uh, what you do, uh, but also what you think of the Jodcast, what you think about uh, the different sections of the Jodcast, how we might be able to improve, what you've learned from us, all those kind of things. Um, so none of the questions are compulsory, but if you can answer as many of them as possible, the more you answer, the more it helps us. So please go and do that if you if you have the time. That's really exciting. I'm, I'm, uh, things like this always always make me really excited. I love finding out like what people think of stuff and hearing people. Whether or not you're funny. Whether or not I'm funny. <laughs> 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 but just generally, it'll be really interesting to hear what because because I guess for me, for us, it can feel a bit like you know we record the show and then it just gets sent off out into the nether. And uh, mm. uh, so now we're we're going to hear back, and that's really cool. Um, and that's why we like receiving all of your postcards and emails and um, mentions on Twitter. So I think we've got some uh, feedback from Twitter as well. Yep. So the user at uh, Rata says, great show you all do. Much thanks from the States, West Coast. So thank you very much for that. Uh, Travelling Matt 72 says, thank you for your lovely Maori stories on the Jodcast. I designed the posters after visiting New Zealand. Smiley face. Uh, real underscore DJK says, my morning commute on the bike takes me past the Defford Radio Telescope, part of the Merlin Project, I think. Oh, that's right, it is. Yeah, yeah it yeah. is. It's um, one of the better behaved. Um, yeah, Defford is lovely. Mm-hmm. I love Defford. It's, um, <laughs> it's a good we, one. We should probably request that real underscore djk doesn't use his mobile phone yeah on no one time one time for us. one time i was on the train and i saw deford from the train and i got so excited i was like <laughs> oh my god this is amazing so i immediately went on facebook um to send a message to to my friends saying i just saw deford from the train and then i realized what i was doing oh, and i was like and oh, oh darren three months later you were drawing the box around that RFI. <laughs> yeah <thing. laughs> shot myself in the foot <laughs> 
I love how on observational astronomers have such a personal relationship with the telescopes they yeah, use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, because I'd only ever seen Lovell and Mark too, and and Because uh, I know some jogcasters before who drove around to all of them, and it's yeah, actually it's something I would love to do myself. Because, um, cause, yeah, I feel like I know them. You know, They all have personalities, and some of them are well-behaved, and some of them aren't. And I'm looking at you, Cambridge. Um, okay, so um, hi to all our new followers, and thanks for all the retweets and favourites. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can also find us on iTunes and uh, please review us on there. Um, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. And you can like us and you can ask us questions, etc. You can also find us on YouTube. I think there actually are some videos from when they did that trip around the um, different telescopes. So that's at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. And if you want to share some images with us, then we have a a Flickr group at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash Jodcast. And also don't forget that you can send us any post via traditional mail, and the address for that is on the website. So thanks to Richard Lake, Dr. Sarah Crowther, and Dr. Giles Johnson for the interviews. Thanks to Ian Morrison and Haritina Mogasanu for the night skies, and Sarah Nakuda for the website write-ups. The editors were Adam Averson, James Bamber, Alex Clark, Niall McCallum, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The producer was Charlie Walker. And until next time, Jod on. on.